What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This week of Burn It All Down, it's the feminist sports podcast you need. Our heartfelt wishes of health and safety go out to the world right now facing the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'd like to say that we are thinking a lot about those in precarious economic positions who can't afford to distance, to stay at home, or to access health care. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by my co-host, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Superstar Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State, the whip smart Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter and founder of the amazing newsletter on women's sports, Power Plays. She's in DC. And the incredible Jessica Luther, independent sports writer in Austin, Texas, and co author of the now actually real book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. On this week's show, we take a hard look at the political backlash against Black Lives Matter in sports. And I interview Olga Trujillo of Diosas Olimpicas and Las Capitanas, who's going to talk about the founding of Mexican Women's Football League, its challenges, and hopefully its bright future. Then we'll burn some terrible things in sports this week, celebrate some badass women, and tell you what's good in our world. But before all that, on June 25th, FIFA voted to hold the 2023 Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And while it's no secret, I preferred it to go to South America. <laughs> never held one. And also Colombian women's game really could have benefited from it. Congratulations goes to those bidders who put together a phenomenal campaign uh, to get it. How, how did you all feel about, about the announcement? Linz? Well, You've really had an impact on me, Brenda. <laughs> I can guarantee you I was much more uh, disappointed than I would have been had I not known you and read your work and my life hadn't been so improved by uh, your knowledge. So I was, I mean, I was disappointed I wasn't in Columbia also for selfish reasons, you know, probably a little bit easier to get to, and, you know, be, you think of selfish reasons, whatever. But, you know, then I saw the video you know, the women, the soccer players and the, you know, soccer community in in Australia and New Zealand celebrating getting the bid. And I was really happy for them. And there's we have a lot of a lot of friends of the show in Australia and New Zealand. I want to give a special shout out to the women who run the Siren, which uh, is covers women's sports in Australia. A newsletter you should subscribe to. I know they are pumped and I know they're going to work really hard to you know, make this a really awesome event. Yeah, and shout outs go to friends of the show, Anna Dong and also Moya Dodd. Yep. So it was lovely to see them. Jessica? Yeah, I don't really have like any good analysis here. You guys did convince me that it would make sense. It would be good logistically for it to have been, you know, south of here. <laughs> <laughs> but I will just say I am excited. I would love to go. 
And so I'm like saving my pennies. If we have, if we have any dollars, benefactors, lots burn, of dollars. Burn out benefactors, um, get in touch, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I've already started my travel fund. They should have given me more time, FIFA, to, <laughs> to build up my travel fund. They should have thought of me. But yeah, I'm excited. I think it's very cool. I'm very excited about New Zealand in particular. But yeah, Australia has an amazing women's football culture that they've been building. And it was very cool to see the images of women footballers on the Sydney Opera House shell. All those pictures were beautiful. Yeah, I know Amira and I are super excited about going to New Zealand. We've talked about that. Amira, are you ready? Oh, I am, you know, so ready. I don't remember who asked it, like, in some Patreon thing, maybe like in a year ago, like, what is your ultimate or next, you know, travel goals destination? And I was like, New Zealand, like, to the point where as soon as I got the Peloton, oh, my God, I'm like such a person. As soon as I got the Peloton, the first scenic ride I did was through New Zealand. So I'm so excited about that. I have to say, like, you know, I think that Bren called this. Like, I, w- I wasn't, like, surprised about this. I was, like, appropriately disappointed. And also, I still just, like, could not get over the fact how long it took to, to <laughs> tell this. Like, that, like, I know that there was a lot of celebration that it was finally, like, released. And I just was like, I cannot believe this took this yeah. long. So that was still at the forefront of my mind. But I am I am really excited about the the way that New Zealand is going to share in this. I'm I'm interested. I'm really interested in the logistics and I'm really hoping that, you know, as my research kind of expands um, and considers athletes in Polynesia and Micronesia and indigenous athletes in, you know, other parts of the world, um, I'm very excited for the possibilities of, of not only going to New Zealand, but really, you know, getting some time to research sporting cultures there as well. So that is what I'm looking forward to. And for those of you that didn't see my tweet about the decision, my co-hosts are referencing the fact that I took some issue with the ways in which Colombia was written about and the ways in which the sexism of their federation was used to say they didn't deserve to host it, even though, you know, players and the Bogota mayor, who's a, a, a feminist champion, were coming out and saying how important it was to them. And I felt like that was shitty and racist and the narco stuff just came out and it was like, ugh. Absolutely. And also if sexism is the bar for like not being able to host things, then like <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to host it ever. Sexism is in the prettiest either. package. Like, <laughs> like it comes down to, oh. Yeah. Put a bow on it. Yeah. And, and you know, as soon as I said that, everyone responded and said, their federation is so corrupt. And you're just like, <coughs> you know, it's, it's just not the kind of, it's just not the kind of analysis that I was looking for. But it's not that I'm not excited for, for New Zealand and Australia. So yay. Okay. In the weeks following the murder of George Floyd in police custody and subsequent wave of Black Lives Matter protests and movements in sports, we have seen also a ferocious backlash. And I wanted to talk about that. For me, a backlash usually is just defined as a retrograde reaction to a progressive social or political movement. And we're seeing it in a lot of different ways, whether it's violence, maintenance of the appearance of normality invoking nostalgia for an imaginary past, 
and for people who traditionally have all the power claiming to be under attack and victims. Amira, could you start us off on this discussion? Yes, certainly. And so I, I entered this discussion as a scholar of, of history, but African-American history in particular, where backlash is absolutely the name of the game. Every step forward comes with a kind of tidal wave of power reasserting itself and hate and, and aggrievement coming back at you. So I think that this entire moment, as it started, I've been carrying a sense of like impending backlash. And then um, when when Brenda introduced this, this topic, it was really good to like focus the energy on thinking about how it's already manifesting in sports in a, in a number of ways. And so what we want to do with this discussion today is think through all of the ways that people are are engaging in backlash, whether it's, you know, the traditional sense of backlash, as, as Brenda noted, where, you know, people are responding or, you know, yelling or doing all sorts of hateful actions in response to some of the gains that we've seen in the sporting world over the last few weeks. And also just people clinging to normalcy, clinging to the status quo. We know that the status quo is anything but just and equitable. And so that maintenance that Brenda was referencing, that that kind of clinging and clawing and attempting to ignore everything that's happening and just charge forward at business as usual in and of itself is is a sense of backlash because it's a refusal to take the steps that, that people are taking. And so I want to start with NASCAR and the inevitable <laughs> backlash I think we all saw coming in terms of their decision to ban the Confederate flag. Um, and so you saw immediately people circling outside of the racetrack in cars, waving flags, the sons of the Confederate veterans or whatever that group is paid for a plane to fly the Confederate flag over the racetrack and that said defund NASCAR. And I think that a lot of this behavior was expected because um, you'll have to pry the stars and bars from the hands of certain people. And yet this past week was also filled with all this kind of topsy-turviness in NASCAR regarding the noose that was found in, in Bubba Wallace's stall. And so the timeline for those who weren't paying attention or chose not to engage was the news that broke that Bubba, there was a noose in Bubba Wallace's style, the only black driver on the circuit. And on the in the wake of not only the flag ban, but Bubba racing in a Black Lives Matter car and, and coming out quite vocally in this moment. And then the FBI <laughs> moved faster than I've ever seen them move on many things, quite honestly. And uh, But moved fast to basically waste no time in saying, well, we've done an investigation and we found that no crime has been committed. And that noose was hang or that it wasn't a noose. It was a pull rope for the door. And it was really in the garage. It's 2019. And therefore there was no hate crime. And I want to focus in on the glee that was expressed by so too many people who wanted to use that quick note from the FBI to, to besmirch Bubba's character, to, you know, equate him with Jesse Smollett or say he was engaging in a hoax, that this was like a, you know, a contrived incident. And it was just a moment of everybody telling on themselves. And, you know, Will Kane and Bomani Jones had a very interesting exchange over this because Bomani appropriately called them for task for saying, Will said, this is the biggest impediment to race relations. <laughs> and it's like that kind of hyperbole is, you know, if you're more indignant, if you're more, you know, if you're 
so joyous that this investigation by the FBI declared this wasn't the news, then you're really telling, revealing a lot about yourself. If it took that one sentence that the FBI says there's no hate crimes for you to blow up all of your kind of progressive goodwill, then guess what? You weren't really having much goodwill in the first place. And the benefit of the doubt is always kind of of given to these NASCAR fans who are so angry. Um, Now, Within a day, the picture merge of the news, and it's a news, and I'm calling it a news because it's a fucking news. Um, and so I don't, you know, it's, it's a damn news. And in addition to that, one of the things that NASCAR noted in their own internal investigation is that they swept 29 tracks, 1,684 garage stalls at Talladega. They found a total of 11 pull down ropes tied in a knot, and only one of those of the pull down ropes was a news. So if it was there for a year, as the FBI says, then that's more of an indictment of, of NASCAR. If people are walking past this, if like it's, it's so clearly a noose. And to get mad that people acted swiftly and decisively about a noose being in the assigned stall of a Black driver in this moment is ridiculous. That is absolutely the right thing to do. And yet the backlash kept coming and it, and it's not going to stop. And we know that. And Bubba knows that as well. He talked about even before this situation, he talked about needing to now be careful and knowing that he had to kind of walk with caution moving forward because of the anger and the backlash kind of coming out of this moment. And so that is where I would start the conversation because I I think that the backlash from NASCAR fans, we all were expecting, but the, the kind of addition of the noose and then the like, misinformation and the backlash against Bubba who had literally nothing to do didn't call this in didn't, like he's just existing in his in being a black ass dude in this white ass sport and there's nooses just hanging around and so yeah that's that's where I would like to start the conversation and I think it's it's particularly important you know i saw two things that i really kind of made note of one this kind of delusion from nascar fans that were pointing to walter scott who was an african-american nascar driver for many um for many years in the mid-century and they were saying like after the FBI report, they were saying, see, we knew that it wasn't true because like, unlike other sports, like NASCAR cares only about ability. Like, I mean, we had Walter Scott racing, you know, years ago. So obviously like we are totally inclusive. And I just was like, LOL. Like I, I tweeted out a primary source document from Black Sports, uh, a periodical in the 70s that is an interview with Walter Scott where the first line is literally like, where's that nigger driving the car? And it's a, he hears that all the time. It's called 25 years of driving alone. And so like the idea of holding up his career to say like, oh, we're super, super inclusive is is of course delusional, but the way that it was weaponized and kind of wielded back against Bubba, I felt was particularly toxic. And also that the lasting image that I take from this week was that that moment where Bubba got out of his car and went to the edge of the speedway and met a group of black fans who had come in Black Lives Matter shirts. And he it made him emotional. He cried. And I keep returning to that image. And in the wake of this kind of backlash, all I can think about is 
how this must be handled, how delicate this must be handled, because NASCAR is is dying, and we know that it's is dying, um, it's it's in the red, it's kind of declining. It stands, it had a little bump. There's black people watching NASCAR when Bubba was racing. There is this kind of new spotlight on it, and all of those potential gains will be lost instantly instantly if they are not prepared and standing up and withstanding and protecting Bubba, especially from the inevitable backlash that is nowhere near over. It's like the waves coming into the shore. They're going to keep coming. And so that's kind of what I have my eye on in terms of it is how from here on out that is handled moving forward. Lindsay, did you want to read a little bit of what Bubba had to say? He talked to reporters on Friday in a Zoom call. He said, um, you know, my emotion is I'm worn the hell out. I'm frustrated. And three, I'm finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. He talked about how, you know, athletes are put on a pedestal. There's not a manual. There's no, not a guidebook to tell you how to handle yourself off the course, off the racetrack, off the fields. It's all something you learn and you go through the trials and tribulations of growth in those incidents. And I think that's what makes you tougher. He said, you just got to be mentally strong. Where I've gotten my strength from, couldn't tell you, because I do read into it and I do get pissed off. So he's he's aware of all of this backlash. I just want to say, I hope that NASCAR front office and all of the drivers continue to have Bubba's back the exact same way they did when they were pushing his car to the front of the line. That allyship and that protection is going to need to be just as big on a day in, day out basis, because this is the fight and this is um, the, you know, don't, don't make him carry that burden alone. I mean, I know obviously he's going to feel this in, in different ways and he's going to be in the spotlight and he's taking that on. But I really hope that what we saw on the track at Talladega, that this backlash that they, that NASCAR and that the drivers don't let this giddiness, this bullshit from the fans who were gleeful over this statement keep them from continuing to push Bubba. Jessica. Yeah, I wanted to talk about what Amira said in her intro of impending backlash. So one thing I've been paying attention to is all this pressure that's been on the Washington NFL team, who for anyone who does not know, their name is a racist slur for Native and Indigenous people. There's been all this pressure for them to clean up their racist act. You know, they did the Black Square on Blackout Tuesday with with no acknowledgement of, of their own name. And so while most people want them to change the name, that's where the discussion is. Instead, the team has tried to show that it's working on their racism or whatever by scrubbing itself clean of George Preston Marshall, who was the original owner of the team. Uh, under his ownership, the team was the last franchise to integrate its roster. He, it, he named the team the racial slur that it is. And so a lot of this started when a memorial of Marshall that used to exist outside of RF or that was outside of RFK Stadium, their old home, uh, it was defaced. And so the city took it down. And since then, the team has removed Marshall's name from the Ring of Fame inside FedEx Field, from the team's history wall at his training facility. They are, quote, deleting him from all aspects of our website, which and this makes, I mean, this in particular makes me feel, and I don't want to be this person necessarily, but it does make me feel like they're actually trying to erase their own history <laughs> by taking him off of the website. But the team says it's going to rename the lower bowl of the venue for Bobby Mitchell, the franchise's first African-American star player. So all that is clearly not backlash, right, to the protests. It's a response. But these choices have led the public at large to push harder than ever, I think, maybe. I want to be clear, not 
Native people. They've long denounced this and nothing is new in that regard. But the public at large is pushing really hard for a name change. I feel like I've seen it everywhere. But I am deeply worried, as a, as Amira talked about with impending backlash, about what that, that inevitability whenever or if ever we get to the point where they actually do something about the name that it's going to people are going to be real mad. Marshall is easy to get rid of. Most casual fans probably don't care about him. Their identity is not, you know, wrapped up in him in the same way that it is with their racist name and logo. It's also really easy with Marshall. He was way back when. Right. So it's like he was before my time. His racism has nothing to do with me or the team. But actively participating in the racist name and logo, it's impossible not to be implicated in that. And so, I mean, part of it, we see it with sports media, right? They're still publishing the name of the team, even in pieces where they're like denouncing it. They're actively participating in the racism of it. So I'm really glad that they have recognized Marshall or recognized the racism of Marshall. But if they actually ever do anything, the right thing, and get rid of his longest racist legacy, which is the name and logo, the impending backlash, I just, it will be bad. And it's worth it. And they should do it. They should do it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. They should never have named it that in the first place. But I think we have to be really sensitive to what this will look like on the other side. Lynn's? Yeah, it's and it's going on in all levels. There's a school in New Jersey right now where they're trying to get rid of, or they've already made the steps to get rid of the cowboy and Indians mascots on the the high school and middle school level. And there are tons and tons of white students protesting, you know, I mean, there's this photo of all of these, you know, kids <laughs> protesting their right to be the cowboys and Indians. So I think it's important to remember that these fights are waging on the local level and being and I think it's easy because of for me, because the media I consume and the people I follow to think that everyone's reached this tipping point and is, you know, like this is finally happening. But it's not. The truth is the fight is way is well behind the curve in many cities and towns across the country. Another major area in terms of backlash where we have seen just frightening violence is in European football or soccer. And we've talked a lot about how Black Lives Matter has been so influential in really sparking a lot in European football, Premier League teams changing their jerseys, kneeling, Bundesliga wearing armbands, kneeling, and players like Raheem Sterling calling for structural change. And uh, Eastern Europe has had fans back before anybody. And so just with 10% of the fans, they've managed to commit numerous racial abuses against players. And it seems, you know, there's no doubt it's, it's pro- disproportionately more intense than it ever has been. It's not that this didn't exist. And then the fans have brought these sort of uh, banners, there's been airplanes, all reading things like White Lives Matter. And the ways in which these hooligan groups describe themselves is as indigenous Europeans. And by indigenous, they mean white, that the white people in Europe are the indigenous people to Europe. 
and the fan supporters groups in places like Sparta Prague, which is a Czech team that's a really important team, released statements saying that crime, quote, crimes against indigenous people in Europe have been overlooked. <laughs> End of quote. And what's important is that these football supporter groups will be locked in a struggle with anti-fascists. I mean, these are fascists. These are real fascists. Like, like they embrace that term. I mean, there's real fascism in the United States as well. But this sort of made up nightmare of Antifa in the U.S. is real in Europe and they're doing real work against these real fascists. And these fascist supporter groups have been used to attack protests, Black Lives Matter protests across Europe in England as well. So, you know, you could check out my my colleague Pavel Klemenko has done tremendous work on this at FAIR and you can you can see photographs if you want to, you know, do that. I don't <laughs> trigger warning, it's hateful and disgusting, but to to look at the ways because, you know, European soccer tends to really also influence US soccer. So, and and these fans have connections with one another. So the backlash has been really frightening and has carried over from the sports scene into the protest movements. And I mean, what is with the planes? Like, seriously, you are so motivated by your racism that you're going to commission a plane? I don't know how you even do that. Do you call (laughs) their like 1-800-RACIST-PLANES available? So, like, White Lives Matter banners over Burnley have flown. And then there's just your mundane shit in global football. And by mundane, I mean Alexi Lalas, right? Victimizing himself and saying, it takes courage to, these days to stand for the national anthem. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? So it ranges. And it's been, it's just been, it's frightening, but it's also... I mean, people, I I think, as Amira said, people are really showing themselves for who they are right now. And I hope everybody is taking note at the ways in which the sports stuff is is really, you know, moving into real violence in real protest movements. Lindsay? Yeah, I just want to briefly address what happened in the NWSL on Saturday um, when that league of NWSL is back in action in Utah. No fans of the tournament. We're recording this on Sunday morning. So this is after the first day of games, which saw, you know, was on CBS for the debut. And the debut was between the Portland Thorns and the Courage. And it was at the beginning, they, for some reason, even though there's no fans, it's an empty stadium, they decided to go forward with the anthem anyways, had a saxophone player uh, come in and do it in the middle of a fucking pandemic. But the starters on the field, all 11 starters from both teams took a knee. They were all wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. Um, everyone on the sidelines, except for one backup goalie for the Courage, took a knee and also the Courage coaches. But the, the image of all the players in their Black Lives Matter shirts um, taking a knee during the anthem certainly went very viral as, you know, the first sports are back moment. And they also held a moment of silence 46 seconds before the game began. You know, everyone on their knee in honor of George Floyd. You know, the announcers recognized police brutality often and explicitly, as did the league in its statements. Black Lives Matter banners were around the field and everything. Um, but I think you really 
you know, that first game, I think it was because so many players were taking a knee, it was very easy to like almost trivialize or commodify the moment and um, oversimplify things. And then I think in the night game, we saw how much this is pressure. This is really putting on black players and the spectacle that people are turning this into and the fact that really not everyone is on board. And so we had, I'm really, cause this just happened last night. So I'm still kind of processing in real time. Um, and I know I want to be quick cause we can come back to this, but Casey during the Anthem this time, it was between the um, Chicago red stars and the Washington spirit uh, not all the starters took a knee, just some did. And there was images of Casey Short sobbing into Julie Ertz's arms um, on the field. And these images went viral. So the player on the other side of Casey Short, Rachel Hill, was not taking a knee. And I mean, Casey Short sobbing through the anthem, it became, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a photo that people remember forever. And for me, the more I thought about it, the the angrier I got. First of all, you know, because not everyone was kneeling with her, because not everyone was on the same page, because it became clear afterwards that this locker room had been fighting and trying to figure out how to deal with this. And they were all emotionally spent before they went on the field. Um, the anthem should not have been played. I don't think, period. I don't think the player should have had to be put through this. It ended up kind of commodifying black grief in this way. And then it put the um, emphasis on who was and who wasn't standing. It just, it really became about so much more. And I think, you know, you're seeing the backlash and you're seeing that not everyone is um, comfortable being unified and how that is impacting these players for real. Um, you know, Casey Short has not come out and, and said anything as of when we're recording this. And I, I don't want to put any words in her mouth. I just want to take a moment to like extend solidarity to her. And my heart breaks for her. I hope that the anthem isn't played. I hope that the spectacle doesn't continue. I hope that the focus is on the work the players are doing and the initiatives and that that's where the league can put a spotlight as opposed to the, the, the anthem stuff, which I, I do think at this point has gotten distracting. Amira? Yeah, I, I think the other you know news story about the anthem and the continued willful ignorance around uh, kneeling for the anthem was also displayed in softball with the Fast Pitch Pro League. Um, and we have a special episode out now featuring Kiki Stokes and AJ Andrews talking about what that moment meant for pro softball and um, the reaction to it. And so um, continue that conversation over there for sure. And just to wrap up this segment, I wanted to talk about how even though backlash can seem disheartening and can seem that it can seem inevitable and that inevitability can make folks want to disengage or, you know, be cautious about moving forward. I also want to, you know, point to the power of continuing to move through the backlash despite it. So one of the stories that I was closely following was that of Mississippi State football player Kylan Hill, who last week tweeted, 
either change the flag or I won't be representing the state anymore. And I meant that I'm tired. And of course, like um, many states, the Confederate flag is embedded within the flag of Mississippi. Um, the backlash to this statement was all of the toxic cesspool racism that you would expect. All of the Mississippi state donors and fans that cheer for Hill every Saturday turned on him instantaneously, and it was awful. But last night, a resolution passed in Mississippi that it hasn't changed anything yet, but it did suspend the rules so that lawmakers could consider a bill that could change or remove the flag. Um, so it's not over. The fight is not over. And I know for me personally, I'm terrified of the backlash to even that. But I think Kyle, you know, said it best. Uh, he tweeted out last night, if you're from Mississippi, you felt this one. And, you know, that's that's where my parents are from. That is where my family, you know, it's the moments like these that that compel us to press on despite the cesspool and the backlash and and everything you know that's rolling downhill with you. And that's, to me, what bravery looks like is continuing to walk straight into it um, because, you know, the only way is forward. And now my interview with Olga Trujillo. Today we are thrilled to have with us Olga Trujillo, a Mexican journalist and independent journalist who covers women in sport in Mexico and beyond. She's the founder of a project that we really love here at Burn It All Down called Diosas Olimpicas. So you can find them on Twitter at Diosas Olimpicas. Yes, spelled like Olympic goddesses. And her new project, Capitanas M-A-X-A-M-X. So we can put both of those in the show notes for you. And they're really wonderful places to keep up with women and sports. So thanks for being with us today, Olga. Thank you, all of you. Thank you for having me. I am a really big fan of Burn It Up Down every time I can. And and also to practice my English. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. That's wonderful for us. It's a, new, it's, a, it's a new advantage to listening to Burn It All Down. Practice your angry English, your feminist angry <laughs> English. <laughs> I know, I know. It's very interesting, all the topics you, you put on the table. So interesting for me. So we've been really worried about the state of women's sport in the pandemic. And one of the leagues we were particularly both excited about and worried about is the Women's Mexican Football League. Uh, And I just wanted to ask you if you could explain to our listeners maybe a little bit about the history of the league. Okay. This league was born on 2017. It was, um, I call it like a... Rush League. I mean, it was created for the same federation of the main league for of men, mm-hmm. but with really different, uh, in a really different situation. I mean, most of the people didn't know the players, the women players. They probably knew some names from the girls who used to play at the national team, like Charlene Corral, Nayeli Rangel, Maribel Dominguez, some of them, one of, of our historic players, women players. And because they used to be on TV, I mean, they used to have this uh, national team on when they were uh, big matches or important matches, but no more. I mean, all the players, most of the players were unknown players. So when the league, they were 
they pulled out uh, players from all the states, different players that they haven't really practiced any professional football. At the beginning, they started with just uh, one little tournament just to prove the style and the their players because they didn't really have a very good condition. When all of this started, of course, all the media started to pay attention on women's football. That was the first time in Mexico media pay attention. So the league continued to have these uh, wonderful players who was fighting to have a place on the team. Although they didn't even receive these big salaries, of course, they have uh, the minimum. And the stars or the, the players that could we called stars, they receive kind of comfortable salary <laughs> to live from. Most of the players of these teams used to have another job or live from their parents as usually do every player and still do. They're still living from supports from other places or other jobs, sadly. So the league started to grow up like with media attention, and also the fans, the amount of fans were growing. At the beginning, they, of course, they started to make comments on media, social media, like, you know, comments that still remain, but they were getting to know each other, like get, getting to know the girls, and the comments started to change. I mean, at the beginning, they were like, go to the kitchen, you know, like all this uh, machism around the football. It was obvious. Go to the kitchen, kill them. Sometimes they were so violent or they are so dummy or they are looking at her bodies, you know, like objectivation and everything. But after that, many men and women started to follow them because of their talents, of course, because they are fighting. The girls have really been fighting to get the attention that they deserve. We as media, as independent media, we have to ask for an interview with a player, and sometimes they don't really let them talk. They ask you, I mean, the teams are the intermediate of the interviews, and they ask you, okay, tell me what are you going to ask, and I'm going to be present when you interview the girl, the football player. So this is like more, they want to have the control, I think, because um, there are so many things that are not, they don't want to say probably. One of one time I went with a lawyer of the league and mm -hmm. she said, or she told me that she didn't really want us media to talk about them like poor girls. They didn't even have shoes. They didn't even have to, to buy the uniform and now they are there not she did want us to talk to them like empowered girls who are really tough and playing with the league but mm -hmm. the truth is that they really spend bad moments like moving from their houses and have to pay a rent and have to pay for hydrating water food yeah yeah water food and it's a very sad situation i mean the league just grew up on media attention on fans of course on on this investment from sponsors they started to show up with their new uh, brand new 
jerseys or, you know, like Nike, all these uh, brands that pay attention on women's sports lately <laughs> because capitalism, they say, or I read last time that capitalists always appropriate the movements. And this time yeah. it, it is like feminism is a movement that they want to appropriate <laughs> yeah. for, for the best. So it was really growing. It was after the World Cup, even though Mexico didn't assist because we didn't pass the preliminaries. Um, sad yeah, sad sadly. From, from all of us here. I know. We lost a very marvelous generation of women players, women football players, but it really continued with the league. I mean, it was like in this big wave of around the world, Megan Rapinoe really, it caused my attention because many, many people in Mexico who didn't really care about women's football started to to look at, started to to pay attention on what women were moving from only, I mean, playing football. And we resonate with her. I did resonate with Megan Rapinoe. As a mm-hmm. woman who has fight for women's rights against discrimination, racism, all of these situations that we uh, live in Mexico also. As in all over the world, when COVID started and the pandemic situation, women's football in Mexico uh, stopped. And we really have uh, this worried situation about the drops in this I mean, one week ago, they uh, they say the president of the league over the federation say that on 25 of July the league will start. After that announcement, most more than 75 players are left or are without team, and it's a very worried situation because the, there exists a Mexican association of professional soccer players. This drop. Due, the president of this association, Alvaro Ortiz, said that most of the drops due to the contract they sign. 90% of the girls don't sign multi-annual, is that the mm-hmm. word? Multi-annual yeah, contract, mm-hmm. as men do. And of course, they are without team right now. Um, the league is supposed to be the Mexico's top soccer league of women, but I wouldn't really call it like that. Uh, they earn around, I think, $280 a minimum and probably $1,300 at the top. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, that's $1,000 at the top level of play per month? Per month, yeah. And do these contracts, do they go the entire year or just part of the year? No, part of the year, of course, okay. only with the in the period that league lasts. I mean, like five months, four yeah. months, and yeah, that's um, it's difficult to live like that. Like that. I mean, of mm-hmm. course, we're living this structural inequality, which we can see at media list. Uh, I mean, at the media, in the courts, during this pandemic, I thought that we were going to find more information about women's soccer like articles or something like that because we are not like some media or some outlets have more access than us to to girls or to 
directors or to the people who who is you know like inside the football but i just saw some interviews some some things like that but there are like two kind of media the ones who have women who are inside the media and care about this women football and the others that that talk about sexism rumors speculations instead of interesting notes or interviews as an independent women in sports or independent sports and it's difficult for us to go against all these androcentric uh, point of views of the media because they really get married with this statement that women's football women's soccer don't sell they always try to excuse themselves uh, you know like trying to say that football still doesn't care women's football doesn't care so it's kind of sadly because after pa this uh, pandemic situation we don't really know what are we going to see it is um, complicated for the players to move from one city to another right now we don't really feel confident to travel right now so just to the u.s listeners mexico has the red orange yellow green Is that right? Yeah. Sort of scale that they're using in regard to the threat of contagion from coronavirus. So that's what Olga's referring to. So when these 75 players left and it's announced that they're going back July 25th, you're a woman in sports media in Mexico, which I think is just about as challenging as being in sports as an athlete in Mexico, maybe, <laughs> as a woman? <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually it is because I am also a mother of two, two kids who mm -hmm. are at home. Their lessons, their regular lessons just finished last week. So we have more time with them and it's been really difficult. It's been really such a difficult decision to, to be working at home and then trying to pay attention on this poor of time. How do I say in Spanish, we say pobreza de tiempo that women in Mexico have. Time poverty time or impoverishment poverty. of time. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's actually a really nice turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah, because we, we really, the sector of uh, women works are being hit because of the pandemic. I mean, many, many works in Mexico are feminine feminist side, uh, like women who works at hotels, restaurants, uh, even hospitals, and the people who works at homes making chores and everything. It's been so hard for us, for women sector. So that's the way it is. I mean, we really, in Diosas, at Diosas Olympicas, we've been trying to make these claims or this to put some more information about the things we are watching Because amateur, in the amateur sport, they are really like kind of struggling in their houses. The individual sport are not that suffer, suffering that much as the team sports. I mean, it's different, you know, like in individual sport, you can practice in your house, like in, in small places and that's all. But in team sports, it's different. It's so different. And it, everything is going to change, I think. And so I just want to... I mean, so that all looks very dark <laughs> in terms of the Mexican Women's League. 
I guess we'll have to see July 25th what actually happens, but we appreciate your work and that you're paying attention to it. Did you want to tell us a little bit about Capitanas Mexicana? Is that... Yeah, I mean, Capitanas Mexicana. <laughs> it was like Capitanas by Diosas, but in Spanish it's kind of tricky to say by Diosas. You can, you can read it sometimes like Capitanas by Diosas. It's, it's <laughs> kind of difficult. But yeah, I'm focused as a journalist and as a mother on these women and how do they use their, which we usually knew as our free time. This is like, I was trying to help them with these um, places or some skills or recommendations of uh, professional trainers where they could take their kids to practice sports. But after pandemic situation, I'm trying to work more as a motivator because we really have to meet our kids. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's getting so interesting because I, I'm giving um, a talk on online about this important situation. We put so much, so much pressure on them when we want them to practice sports because all the sports have been so commercialized that sometimes we dream that they could be the champ in the go on TV, etc., etc. But our kids sometimes didn't even want to practice sports. So I'm trying to give some information about how can we just a guide from them and their travel inside sports. And it doesn't have really be so organized, not in all the stages. I mean, from five to eight, it could be one thing. And from eight to 12, they can start looking for their, their sport they love and so on. So it's a very new situation. I'm, I consider myself as an expert in motherhood and sports because my husband also is a sport journalist. So we have all these kind of inspiration movies and books and everything to, to talk about with other parents that sometimes feel pressure instead of feel happiness for seeing their kids practicing sport. Well, Olga Trujillo, thank you so much for being with us and all of your work. We really appreciate you at Burn It All Down. And hopefully, let's vamos on July 25th. Let's hope that they make good on the Women's League again. Yeah, we also hope that we all these outlets, like independent outlets and all the outlets that support women in football, put so much pressure to see them again on the top of their success. All right, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, the burn pile. This is where we take all the things that have been terrible this week in sports and set them metaphorically for now aflame. Jessica. Yeah, so before I get to my burn this week, I want to give a quick update from my burn last week. The U.S. Tennis Association initially cut the wheelchair competition from the upcoming U.S. Open without consulting any wheelchair athletes. After those athletes expressed anger and frustration, as I talked about last week, um, at the USTA's decision, they announced that the wheelchair tournament tournament would, in fact, be held from September 10th to the 13th. So I'm glad that the USTA listened to those athletes. And now on to this week's burn, which keeps us on the tennis court. 
Novak Djokovic, the current number one men's singles player in the world and the president of the ATP Player Council, which has been actively participating in the planning of the return of the regular men's tour. That feels really important. Uh, He decided arrogantly earlier this year to put on an exhibition tour called the Adria Tour. Originally, it was supposed to be played in four cities from June 13th through July 5th. He got Dominic Thiem, Alexander Zverev, and Grigor Dimitrov to sign on. They did their first stop in Belgrade earlier this year. Most of the press I saw was about how they filled the stadium to capacity, 4,000 people strong, few in masks, and almost no social distancing. The players hugged. They shook hands with the umpire. They took selfies with fans. They signed autographs. They took towels from the ball kids. It was really difficult to look at it. And then... Last weekend, the tour moved to Croatia. No systematic coronavirus testing was required of anyone before the event began. And now the whole tour has been canceled. Because it turns out, in case this is new news to anyone, we are in a pandemic. And not social distancing, especially while playing sports, is a bad fucking idea. It turns out that after the tournament, which brought people into the area from other places in the world... Dimitriov returned to Monaco after not feeling well most of the weekend and having to withdraw from his second match because of it. You see where I'm going with this. Dimitriov then tested positive for COVID-19 and the tournament was immediately canceled. And then positive cases rolled in. Djokovic, his wife, Borna Koric, Viktor Troiki and Troiki's wife all tested positive for COVID. Most recently, Djokovic's coach, Gorni Vinicevic, who was the director of the event, tested positive. The sheer arrogance of putting on this tour at all and then to do so without the proper social distancing measures in place is enough to burn this. I could stop there. But I really want to read this bit from a New York Times piece about this that shows how this impacts more than just the tournament itself. Quote, in Zadar, a small coastal town in Croatia that had no confirmed infections until it hosted a leg of the competition. The authorities were left scrambling to trace and test people who might have come in contact with Dmitriov. They brought this to this town and then left those people with fucking coronavirus. That is so terrible because in large part, it was totally predictable. And we are talking about people's health and their lives. It's so selfish and so infuriating. Burn. 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 Lindsay. Yeah, I just want to burn this quote from Adam Silver. So Adam Silver, commissioner of the NBA, he was on a conference call with reporters talking about the NBA's return to the bubble that they're creating in Disney World um, in about a month. And he said, we're coming back because sports matter in our society. They bring people together when they need it the most. And, I, you know, this isn't just an NBA thing. The NWSL, the, the start of the broadcast on CBS yesterday, said something similar about why they needed to come back. And I just want to say, I love sports. My whole career is sports. <laughs> I, I agree that sports are power. That's You're not coming back because sports matter in our society. You're coming back for money. And just fucking admit that, you know? What we don't need right now is to be united around sports. We need to be united around fighting systemic racism and get getting the coronavirus out of here, like wearing masks. That's what we really need to be united around. And I don't really think, I mean, I think these athletes will use their platform, but ultimately we could do all that without sports. 
We can do that without putting these lives in further danger in a city that, uh, in state that is, you know, having record numbers of coronavirus cases every single day. Players are going to get sick. There are going to be long-term consequences for um, some people who get infected in this bubble while playing for the NBA or the WNBA. It's just, it's just inevitable. And honestly, what you've decided is that your bottom line is worth a few sacrificing a little bit. That it is not worth it to leave a whole, you know, um, summer of basketball unplayed. And I know some athletes are pushing it for it because they want to be competing because they dedicate their lives, to their sport, because they don't want to lose a whole, you know, a whole opportunity to win a championship or play with our team. I know there are some like legitimate competition reasons, but let's just throw the bullshit out of sports uniting us or society needing sports. What we need, like I said, is to get rid of the coronavirus and to, you know, unite around fixing systemic racism. And um, just just get out of here with with that bullshit, because let's just be transparent about what we're doing and about the risks we're taking and about why we decided that we're going to pretend things are normal when they are very, very, very much not normal and nobody should be acting like they're normal. Burn. 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 Mira? Yeah, I have um, a burn rooted in exhaustion. It will be brief. I'm just sick of saying the same things, I think, maybe. That's why I'm why I'm exhausted. So yeah, Connie, Alexi, you know damn well why people kneel for the flag. Stop pretending you don't. This is intentional. It's bullshit. For years people have told everybody what kneeling means. And I'm over it. Just stop. Yes, Mississippi State fans. Yes, NASCAR fans. That flag you cling to is a symbol of hate. And you know it, which is why you cling to it. Don't give me heritage, not hate bullshit. It flies in Maine. It flies in Oregon. You know exactly damn well it's doing. Just stop. And Clemson, remember how I burned you last week for... (laughs) The fact that you that you had 19 cases or what was it, 23 cases of football players that you brought back for voluntary workouts in the middle of a pandemic who tested positive. And guess what you decide to do? Keep practicing and announce that 14 more football players have tested positive this past week. What? There's still a pandemic. Even though you don't want it to be, that doesn't mean it goes away. And you know this. But again, like Lindsay just said, your bottom line is more important. So you go on. And I guess that's, that's why I'm just exhausted is because we've said this. I'm sick. I'm quite frankly sick of burning this shit because at this point is not, it's not willful ignorance. We know what it is. It's intentional. It's hateful. It's harmful. And I just, I mean, I'll say burn it down because I'll throw it on the burn pile, but I'm just literally even overdoing that because it's exhausting to run around the corner, like in a a hamster wheel, chasing after the same damn thing. You know, people grind their feet in in the mud and want to stay in a place of hate and harm. And that's bullshit. So whatever. I'm exhausted. Burn Burn. it. Burn. Burn. My burn for this week, I need to add a trigger warning for domestic violence and all violence, very violent. Once upon a time, there was a really good goalkeeper for Flamengo, Bruno Fernandez, and he was 
being scouted by European clubs and rumored about $100 million more or less for just his transfer fee. He, at that time in 2000, well, in 2013, he was jailed in a very important case uh, because he had ordered, he had arranged for the murder of his girlfriend, who was also the mother of his child, to be killed um, in very um, awful ways and then fed to a pack of Rottweilers. He then was in prison and convicted and now is currently the head of a campaign for a kennel. He has been picked up by sponsors. He is the fact that he is allowed to be in the public with the jerseys and that the teams have not gone after this. And the fact that the teams and the clubs that he once played for have not made public statements about the fact that he is back in the public eye and that he is sporting and these jerseys and using his association with Brazilian football to exist in a public space where he can present himself as anything less than a monster, I would like to burn. Burn. Well, after all that burning, let's move on to some really wonderful work that women are doing in sports. And I should say this week, we also have a non-binary person that we are honoring. So honorable mentions this week go to Chrissy Carr, a Kansas State ball player who is helping to organize the Kansas State Black student athletes in solidarity with each other and to demand the university take decisive action against racism, including students who post racist statements and make the campus safe and inclusive for all. Chrissy and others have stated they will not play until these demands are addressed. Canadian women goaltender Kim St. Pierre um, has broken ground for female goalies by being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Natasha Cloud who is foregoing the WNBA season, saying, quote, I have a responsibility to myself, to my community, and to my future children to fight for something that is much bigger for myself than myself and the game of basketball. I will instead continue to fight on the front lines for social reform because until Black lives matter, all lives can't matter. End of quote. Bentley women's basketball coach Barbara Stevens announced her retirement after a 44-year coaching career that included over 1,000 wins, the 2014 NCAA Division II National Championship. Morgan Flores was named the 2020 College Softball Johnny Bench Award winner, which is given to the best catcher in college softball each year. The Street League Super Crown winner, Leo Baker, marking the first inclusion of a non-binary skater in the Tony Hawks' Pro Skater Series, a 20-plus year history of that series. And congratulations to the women named to Muslim Women in Sport Powerless 2020. Our very own Shireen Ahmed is now in the emeritus section. What an amazing selection of global talent. And can I get a drum roll? The Badass Woman of the Week. 
Women of the Week goes to Kiki Stokes and her teammates at Scrapyard Fast Pitch Softball for immediately calling it quits and sacrificing their career goals and financial opportunities after the organization tweeted to President Trump that their players hadn't kneeled. Okay, what in these difficult times is good in your week, Lindsay? So this is going to go against a lot of things I said, and I think <laughs> shit's complicated. My brain's complicated, but um, I thought the NWSL overall, besides playing the anthem, did a good job with their their comeback. Um, the league has added sponsors, and you know how you add sponsors during a global pandemic is pretty impressive and. You know, the players, a lot of them seem really excited. And it was, I don't know, I'm I'm so conflicted. But there were moments last night where it was really nice to be watching, you know, female athletes do their thing. Then I woke up this morning really anxious just about it all. So that's complicated. But also, I I took a little break. I I got out of DC, out of my room for a little bit. Um, That's why I wasn't on the episode last week. And that was nice. Nature is good. Rumor has it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amira? Hi. Okay. So what's good this week, I would have to say, is talking to Black women, because they're rock stars. Um, I especially want to give a huge shout out to Courtney Cox, a friend of the show, who has been, who is my, one of my favorite accountability partners and our conversations turn into hour long uh, discussions. I'm also uh, had the opportunity to talk to Kiki Stokes and AJ Andrews and Anna Cockrell and Chrissy Carr this week about various actions in their respective sports. And all of those conversations went so much longer than we intended just because it felt so good to have a space to come together and, and just what we call like a virtual laying of hands to just kind of show up and take care of each other and, and be a space to talk about, you know, multiple, multiple burdens. And um, that was really, really really rejuvenating this week. And I also am uh, excited because a certain musical is hitting Disney Plus. And I know that everybody's timeline this week will be filled with op-eds critiquing it. And I think all of those critiques, most of those critiques are very valid and fair. And also, I am very excited and I know certain co-hosts, I won't out them, but I know that other people are very excited <laughs> as me. well. It's me. It's me. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, I'm okay. just uh, looking forward to that. I mean, of course, Humble Rag, I did see it, you know, with the original cast, <laughs> but I'm really excited to revisit it and to be able to watch Samari watch it, who, you know, remember she played Angelica in Camp Hamilton. And of course, as a theater kid has lived and breathed the soundtrack for, you know, eons, but for ha- to have her have the visuals feels um, really important. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that this week. All right. And I am looking forward to my baby brother coming to visit today with all distancing and protocols and masks provided. But in any case, he is coming up to visit and it's I haven't seen a family member in quite some many months, especially one that is my favorite. One of them. Don't tell anyone. This Um, is private. Yeah. Good. Thank you. No one, no one telling me. So super excited about that. 
Jess? Yeah, so she's not here, but she still inserts herself. Anyway, Miss Shireen Ahmed uh, texted me earlier this week and and asked me if I would please mention in What's Good that she's very excited that the Dixie Chicks will now be known as the Aww. Chicks. So that's what's good in Shireen's world. Yesterday, I got the mail and I opened it up. I had a thing from UT Press. It was clearly a book, and I was like, what did I order from UT Press? And I opened it, and it was actually the advanced review copy of my own book that I co-authored with Kavitha, Loving Sports and They Don't Love You Back. It came. I was able to, like, hold it and flip through it. It's like a real thing. It's hard to explain what that feels like, but it's good. Uh, It's very good. And then this week... Really, a lot of what's gotten me through is we have Aaron and I have been watching the fifth season of Queer Eye at night, and that's what I do before I go to bed. And I just love it. It makes me feel good every single time. I appreciate that, especially right now in this moment. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Just a big, huge, incredible ginormous thank you to our patrons for their generous support and to remind people about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount to become official patron of the podcast and in exchange you get access to special content and rewards. So we couldn't do this without you. Also, uh, just a reminder, you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise. I hear we're working on masks. For now, you can get mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags in our Teespring store. So check it out. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We do appreciate your reviews and feedback. So please, please subscribe and rate. Let us know what we do well and what we can improve upon. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You can find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to the Patreon. Again, we would really appreciate any place that you could share or review the podcast with because we would love to keep growing and uh, keep reaching listeners that need to hear this. So I'm Brenda Elsie on behalf of my co-host, Burn on and not out. Burn on.